welcome to Altamar. I'm Moni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here with you once again, navigating the rough seas of global politics like we do every other week. Today, we're going to tackle a seemingly esoteric subject, nearshoring. Now, I know you're probably saying to yourself, what the hell is that? You know what offshoring is, but nearshoring is the new buzzword. So keep listening. It's interesting. It's geopolitically strategic, and it could be successful. So why is this a buzzword? Because since the early 2000s, most U.S. and European companies looked to cut costs by moving their manufacturing operations to China and East Asia. And over the years, the world's dependence on China, on global supply chains that depended on China, it increased and increased and increased. It was not until the geopolitical and supply chain risks became glaringly obvious, especially during COVID, that companies and governments started to rethink the existing structure. Companies thinking of moving factories to China today have to deal with a country that's more and more authoritarian and discretionary. There are trade disputes between China and Washington that grow exponentially, and your company could face branding backlashes given China's increasingly harsh human rights records. So China is not the cheap, wonderful workers' paradise to move your company to that it was before. So that raises questions for companies, right? As CEOs rethink their supply chain strategies, opportunities come up for Caribbean and Central American countries in particular. And that's what we are discussing today with a very special guest who's experiencing this transition firsthand. We will have the foreign minister of the Dominican Republic, Roberto Alvarez. So, Peter, we're learning more and more and hearing more and more about this subject. And it seems that every other news story in Latin American government's uplifting official speech mentioned supply chain rerouting as a cure-all for the COVID hit that hit the region so badly. And the Inter-American Development Bank frequently publishes newly crunched statistics about the potential increase in exports if U.S. manufacturers would only switch parts of their supply chain from China to the Caribbean and the Latin American region. Everyone is asking the Biden administration to ramp up the private sector investment incentives to enable new manufacturing and service industries to settle in Central America that could mitigate immigration to help recovery into the tourism industry that has hit the islands of the Caribbean so hard. And the opportunities are definitely there. That's pretty obvious. And the U.S., of course, has free trade agreements with 12 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. That opens up the market a lot. But the solution is definitely not quick and easy and not permanent. It includes working really hard with governments to increase technical capacity infrastructure, especially training to prepare these countries for new investment. So I'm really not sure whether nearshoring is going to stay a buzzword or a fad or whether it can actually be a long-term solution. But Muni, let's talk more about the elephant in the room, which is China. You know, COVID supply chain disruptions and the growing geopolitical uncertainty were a wake-up call for this offshore model that all of the globalists were so in love with. And it's an invitation to regroup, rethink, and look at this again, coupled with the staggering increases in shipping costs from China and the interruption in trade flows causing scarcity, suddenly governments and businesses are looking for new long-term solutions. And if you add to this the deepening mix of China's strategic and political footprint in Asia, the risk of increasing tariff wars, not to mention 
the human rights record I was talking about before. And if the U.S. ups its game and helps create a robust service economy in the Caribbean islands and in Central America, if it activates existing trade agreements and fosters integration through free trade zones, tax breaks, and all that stuff, this could really be an opportunity for the Biden administration to create a whole new era of private sector growth for U.S. companies in the region. And geopolitically, you get the added bonus of lessening dependence on China by countries in the region, which is a long-term goal that everybody wants to have. You're so right, Peter, but I don't know. I see the U.S. so tied up right now. I can't even imagine how the government can craft such a policy between Afghanistan, the immigration crisis at the southern border, which, by the way, would be very much helped by creating opportunities in Latin America and other domestic issues. I don't even know when the Biden team is going to pony up the money, the political will, and the time to make this into the lasting trend that it needs to be for companies to actually relocate into the region. Europe, for that matter, has also, you know, affected, but also very distracted, to say the least. But the fact is, America needs to pay attention to this opportunity. Companies are already moving out of China. Numbers show 33% of global manufacturers have already moved some of their operations out of China. So it's happening. It's not some, you know, future pipe dream. And the, and the numbers keep growing. Samsung, Apple, Hasbro, Nintendo. GoPro, or just some of the names that have moved parts of their manufacturing elsewhere. And it makes plain business sense. And it's also the promising path for a young demographic in the region that has great potential for training. And let's hear about this from Thea's take, Opportunities for the Region's Youth. This is Thea's take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And I'm Thea Ivanovich. So Central America and the Caribbean are really strong magnets for nearshoring, and there's a huge opportunity given many of these countries' robust young workforces. But opportunity does not equal economic growth, and a lot will depend on what governments will be able to accomplish in the next few years. Education, and especially targeted training programs, are crucial to expand labor capabilities that would enable Central America and the Caribbean to attract those nearshoring opportunities. Because, and as we've seen in the region, young men and women that are unemployed can turn to criminal activities and pose a security risk for the region and the hemisphere as they migrate to countries where there are economic opportunities. And that's a whole separate conversation. It's been done before, and Central American and Caribbean nations can benefit from best practices from the initial offshoring that you guys talked about in East Asia, which includes Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and of course, China. So those countries really managed to exploit their demographic opportunity and create these high value jobs in the service and manufacturing sectors. So my question is how the countries of the Caribbean plan to use their young demographics to take advantage of those nearshoring opportunities. What do you think? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Yeah, you brought up exactly the right question, which is how do governments get involved in improving the capacity of young people? But there's another big question is whether the region is ready for offering nearshoring to companies. Altamar has covered the region's unstable governments, its poverty, its corruption, the lack of infrastructure around Latin America. These are all roadblocks that result in the potential of Latin America missing this really interesting opportunity. 
And I recently talked about this in an op-ed that I did for Brink News, which is our Altamar partner. And in that op-ed, I also said that the Dominican Republic may just be one of the big exceptions to the bad news in Latin America. It is one of the more forward-looking, stable, democratic, and pro-Western countries. And so to talk about this bright side, to talk about the hurdles, to talk about the opportunities, I'm so pleased to welcome Minister Roberto Alvarez, a dear friend since my graduate school days at Johns Hopkins SAIS, my partner in the food business ventures that he has done here in Washington, D.C., but he's a D.C. insider, a former OAS ambassador, and now the foreign minister of the Dominican Republic. Roberto, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to be with you and Mooney and Teo, of course. So, Roberto, let me just ask you an easy question just to warm ourselves up in the conversation. So are you optimistic about the medium and long-term success of this effort to attract nearshoring opportunities in the Caribbean and Central America? I am very optimistic in the short term, highly optimistic in the medium term, and utterly optimistic in the long term. And let me explain why. Uh, first of all, this has been coming, this has been happening now for a while. In 2018, uh, President, then President Trump, imposed a series of tariffs on the People's Republic of China, beginning sometime in July, September of 2018. UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, did a study in 2019, which looked at trade diversion that occurred from China two other countries between that summer of 2018 and more or less September of 2019, 14 months. And it found a trade diversion of $21 billion. Now, there was no plan in place to direct that trade diversion. So where did that 21 billion go? Primarily Taiwan, about $4.2 billion, Mexico, 3.5, Europe, 2.7, Vietnam, 2.6, Japan, 1.5, and then it split South Korea, Canada, India, and other countries. Now, given the pandemic and given the continuing um, conflict between the United States and China, the trend has accelerated. And now the United States has started to look at programs, in this case, possible legislation. One is in the Senate called AXA, American Competitiveness, Transparency, and Security uh, Act at Bill. And the other one is Made in the Americas, which is in the House. But anyway, there is now a, a, a greater awareness that you need supply chains closer to the U.S., to the source market because of the need to deliver quickly to the market, because of the cost now, the, the freight has increased dramatically from Asia to our countries, more than four times, five times for a container. So for a number of reasons, now the region is poised precisely because of that, uh, the proximity to the United States to reap great benefits, and the Dominican Republic is right at the center. You took the question right from my mouth. Tell us a little bit about what this could mean 
or even what it already means for the Dominican Republic in terms of the ability to attract new businesses and investment? McKinsey did a study recently uh, titled Risk, Resilience, and Rebalancing in Global Value Chains. And the firm estimates that given these trends that I just just mentioned, uh, there is a trend in supply chains to concentrate geographically. Between 16, and I'm quoting now from the study, between 16 to 26% of global goods exports worth about 2.9 trillion to 4.6 trillion could conceivably move to new countries. Okay, where is the largest market? The largest market in the world is still the United States. The Western Hemisphere, again, we're positioned, we are within two to three days by ship from major ports in the East Coast. So we could, we're so well positioned and other countries in, in the region as well to take them great advantage uh, of this uh, wave of manufacturing relocation. Uh, So, I mean, I I could go on, but I I think that this gives you the flavor of why we have 2 million Dominicans or Dominican of Dominican origins in in the United States. And do you feel like already the Dominican Republic has reaped the benefits of this? Right now, I can tell you 2021, we are going to set historic records for our exports this quickly. We're growing right now at 13.3% in so far this year. We will be exporting to the United States over $6 billion this year, which will set a record. Our imports will top from the United States will top $10 billion. So our combined trade will be about $16 billion. We may be the fifth largest trading partner of the United States at this moment after Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia. And given your size, that's pretty impressive. Let's talk one second about COVID. COVID has done such devastation to the economies in the region, creating migration flows, poverty, violence, economic backsliding. And what are some of the priorities that countries have to focus on to move beyond COVID? Because that's also important to attract business. Look, the first thing that President Abinader did was to concentrate on acquiring vaccines wherever they were available. And the place where we found them originally was in the People's Republic of China. It was a life and death matter. And so we had to um, uh, buy, purchase vaccines, uh, not inexpensive, uh, by the way, uh, from, from China. Now, so we have now vaccinated about 11 million we administer about 11, 11 million doses. We have over 50% of our uh, population over 18 already with two shots, maybe about 53%. This is absolutely necessary to have this in place before the economy can start to recover. So, but that along with our, we have fabulous uh, air and maritime connectivity with the United States. We have over 20 flights a day to the United States, over 30, I believe, uh, ships uh, go to the the east coast of the United States. So all of this, and plus tourism, uh, of course. The government has been uh, focusing on improving the infrastructure of our health system, particularly after this dramatic, uh, uh, we were 
hard hit at the beginning, uh, like most countries. But the, the speed of the vaccination program has allowed the economy now to start recovering and at the pace that I mentioned before with, with the growth that we expect this year. So we have focused on this podcast on the Caribbean and Central America. And, and as minister, what measures could governments like the Dominican Republic, but others, take to position these countries to compete not only with China, but with giants like Mexico, Chile, and others who have already kind of caught the wave? And what is the competitive advantage? You've mentioned the, the ability to be a, a hub for travel, but what are some of the competitive kind of advantages that the Caribbean and Central America have against all of these giants? You know, each country has its own set of challenges and, and strengths, and there isn't one solution to fit all countries. In our case, in the Dominican Republic, Our strengths are we have a strong manufacturing base and we we are the first country in the region uh, in exports, uh, again, as I said, to the United States. We are just because of the connectivity, again, we have an advantage over countries that are in the southern cone of the, uh, of the hemisphere. We have the seventh largest port in Latin America and the Caribbean in DP World, Calcedo, which also has a third largest connectivity in the region, uh, only surpassed by Panama and Colombia. So strategic location, world-class logistics, infrastructure, air, maritime connectivity, and also, I must say, we have a strong agricultural base. We feed, probably we, we are self-sufficient about 90%, in agricultural uh, in our agricultural production so we we have a great medical devices uh, strength largest circuit breaker exported to the united states we we have a number of of advantages that that make us oh and i can't of course i i can't leave out one of pietro's favorite uh, exports uh, hand rolled cigars of course uh, we're ex we're stand to export over $1.5 billion in a worth of cigars this year. Is the regulatory framework there or are there internal reforms that need to happen to make this sustainable in the long term? Well, absolutely. Without that, I mean, we have a challenge in terms of the educational level of our population, which we have been dedicating considerable resources, 4% of the budget uh, every year now, So human capital development programs are essential uh, to reducing the technical gaps. Overall ease of doing business, integrating technology to the licensing process, streamlining uh, uh, required permitting, uh, reducing human interaction in cross-border trade, and so on. So we have to... Um, continue to implement risk engines and, and technology. All of these require time. Of course, we've been in, in the, the Avina, their government has been, we've been in, in office now uh, for a, just a year. So we've done, under the pandemic, we've done, I think, remarkable uh, work so far. You've mapped out kind of the, the, the structure of global shipping and transportation costs. And we've heard so much about the issues that come up with trade flows, the delays in transportation, the nightmare logistics, full warehouses, empty grocery stores. What is happening and how can it be resolved? 
Well, these are difficult issues. These are not resolved overnight. These are byproducts of trade imbalances and sudden shifts in demand and supply. This, again, where short supply and value chains are, again, of critical importance, and the location to the United States uh, closeness is, is essential. The more you depend on products or suppliers that are geographically far, the more complex finding a solution becomes. So the more risk of being negatively impacted by uh, external factors and the more exposed to external shocks. so as we recover, the, the economies recover uh, and peaks and demands uh, tend to flatten out, um, commodity prices are again returning to reasonable stability. We hope that by the end of the year they will be, because we've been hit with you know, inflationary external factors considerably. One of them, again, uh, as I mentioned before, have been the cost of freight, which have increased dramatically. And the difficulty in, in, in the demand, the short demand, has also created uh, these, uh, these difficulties. So anyway, geographic uh, concentration of key value chains are required now. This is why nearshoring is so attractive. So Central America and the Caribbean have young workforces, many of them tech-savvy and bilingual. And investment in education is key. There, and there's a lot of talk about revamping call centers, ramping up fintech operations and other creative endeavors. Can you describe some of these programs that the DR is implementing to train and include the young into the workforce? Uh, this is uh, an, essential, an essential aspect of the development process and the concentration that the Avina their government has been dedicating uh, recently by implementing dual training programs have allowed for both on-the-job training as well as technical and higher technical training. And of course, English immersion programs are a major focus. This has helped considerably in setting up one of the major industries that has has helped recently and been in the call centers, as you mentioned. So a lot of young people find their first jobs in these areas. But in any way, as we continue to expand our manufacturing base and attract new sectors critical for the U.S. We, we look to increase the resilience, diversity, and security in the supply chains, and the youth will be one of the first. As well as, I must say, sort of, we are also looking at gender equality in the hiring and uh, in the training. This is essential as well for the health, of, the long-term health of the economy. So additional efforts include developing of finishing schools, models to shorten gaps in formal education. So Roberto, we're, we're running out of time. So I want to ask a couple of the important questions. One is, you know, in a, in a conversation that you and I had prior to this interview, we, we talked a little bit about what America could do to help nearshoring, which, you know, for, from the American point of view, it ought to be called friend shoring. So, is the Biden administration doing enough? I mean, are they paying attention to this? Do you sense some action here? Look, I think that the Biden administration came into office at a very difficult time, at a moment in which the U.S. has been polarized internally to what I find uh, perhaps uh, 
historic levels as far as I can remember. So I think that the Biden administration has had to concentrate, A, on uh, domestic issues, on the economy, and vaccination program. So not so far, they have not also had in place the number of officials required for Latin America, the regional offices in State Department or the White House to dedicate the attention that the region requires. The issue of Afghanistan has also taken up a lot of oxygen uh, for the administration. So I hope that now it will begin to concentrate on the region. I think so. The U.S. is calling for a summit of democracies uh, this December. And I think that this will be a moment of somewhat of gathering the wagons, uh, circling the wagons of of countries that have uh, similar viewpoints and open economies, similar viewpoints on values, democracy, human rights, and so on. And I think, uh, hopefully, that either some of the bills that I mentioned before in the Senate or in the House will pass, or that the administration adopts some type of program, similar to what once existed, the Caribbean-based initiative in the past, or what uh, the U.S. has recently adopted for countries in the northern part of Central America, for El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, uh, under the program called the Call to Action. So I think that the, the groundwork has been set, has been laid, and I think that the administration, with some of the regional problems that we know, and uh, one of them being, of course, our neighbor, Haiti, which is going through a very difficult transition, and which is, of course, for the Dominican Republic of particular importance because it affects our national security. So I I hope that uh, the United States will now continue to pay closer attention to the region. It's hard to believe that with the tragedy of Haiti's earthquake, the Dominican Republic is not thinking of this as as a kind of as a regional solution. Is there anything that can be done from the Dominican Republic to help Haiti and, and allow them to stand to gain from these near nearshoring efforts? Well, in the first place, the, you know, the Dominican Republic responded immediately to the earthquake in Haiti recently. Uh, We sent in an airplane immediately the first day of the earthquake, uh, which transported, was used by the prime minister to move, uh, to fly over the affected areas and actually pick up the foreign minister who was at Lecai and bring him back to Port-au-Prince. Then we sent several ships and airplanes, uh, actually the following day, and ships full of uh, medical supplies and, and food. So we immediately responded in solidarity with Haiti. Now, what else could we do? Because, as I mentioned, Haiti is such an important country to us. We would love to see the Haitian political actors, uh, business uh, sector, the religious leaders, the civil society all come together. This is what is absolutely essential and needed for Haiti is for the main actors of society to uh, agree on a common program, which A, leads to a reduction of violence, which is out of control, and which 
So pacification is absolutely essential and eventually creates the conditions for legitimate elections to take place. This is not going to be easy. It's going to take time. Fortunately, the U.S. is paying attention to the situation now, has uh, designated a special envoy, which is now in Haiti and has been going to Haiti regularly. So we expect, hope that Haiti will be included in all of these efforts, nearshoring and other, there are other legislation which right now help Haiti and which are both islands participate, hope help, not want to get into this technical aspects, but absolutely, we expect, uh, Mooney, that this will happen, that Haiti will be included in these programs. Roberto, we've run out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Altamar. It's been a great and enlightening discussion. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Muni, and thank Thea. It's been a pleasure to be on Altamar. Muni, there's no doubt that the opportunities that the world's disenchantment with China, as well as the, the increased freight costs and all of the other technical issues are making people look elsewhere. The, the question to me is whether all of this nearshoring pitch that Roberto so well explains is a really a turnaround thing. I mean, are we talking about investment at levels that we have never seen before in Latin America, or is it just sort of an additional way to attract this or the other potential company to invest? I think it's it really depends on the regulatory framework and on the serious, you know, kind of intentions of governments. This is a rule of law issue. This is an investment promotion issue. We've talked about the trade agreements, but more than anything, it's political will and the ability to stay the course because this is a long term process. And some some countries are treating it kind of like a cure all in the short term. But I do think that like Dominican Republic you have to take advantage of the already competitive advantages and and work really hard to try to make the production go there and stay. So I think that it really depends on political will. So Peter, this is the end of our podcast today. And you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. <laughs>